Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 follows right after Ezra in the Old Testament times. Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. Ezra apparently wrote the first half, and Nehemiah is writing this second part, which we're going to take a look at tonight. Nehemiah chapter 1, the whole chapter. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Our Father, who art in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. <clears throat> we thank you for allowing us to attend your house of worship and worship you. We ask that you will be with Dr. DeYoung as he brings this word to us. 
that the words may come readily to his lips and that we will understand them. This we ask in your name alone. Amen. Many of you will recall that back on May 28, the weekend of Memorial Day, I was also in this pulpit privileged to bring a message from Ezra chapter 7. At that particular time, I have to confess, I bit off quite a bit more than I could chew. And when I got all finished, I had to stop because of time concerns, but I felt as though I had not adequately covered what I had hoped to cover. But I am so fascinated with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that I want to share some more of this with you. Right now I'm doing a study on the book of Nehemiah and I'm finding it to be something that I've pretty much ignored for a big part of my life. I've never done a serious study, I've never done preaching from it, but it's truly a fascinating part of God's holy word. And it teaches us some very important truths. And as I said back there in May, there is a real historical progression that we need to keep in mind if we're going to understand any of these books correctly. And once again, the chronological sequence goes from Daniel to Esther to Ezra, and then you can go, those are historical books, and then you go to Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi, which are all part of the same era and the same concerns, and then you go from there to Nehemiah. This is all part of Persian history. Persia is the empire under which the Jews are living from the time of the end of the Babylonian captivity until the time of the Greeks, which happens in the fourth century. We're dealing here with an introductory chapter that I want to just give you a flavor for so you might pick up an interest and say, I want to learn more about the book of Nehemiah because there's so much in here. I want to take a look, first of all, at the context. You need to see the context, and then we're going to take a look at some of the concerns that are expressed that we ought to know about, and then finally, the response. Those three points. The context. We start out in verse 1, finding out that Nehemiah is the son of Hakali. Now, in the book of Ezra, and in other books, Chronicles, you're going to find a whole listing of all the names of those people who left Babylon, who left Persia, and went back to Jerusalem. There were at least two major migrations from Babylon, from Persia, back to Jerusalem. The first one is in 538 B.C. under Cyrus. And they go back to Jerusalem with the purpose of rebuilding the temple. That's their purpose. That's their mission. Hakaliah is not listed with those. Back in Ezra chapter 7, there is another migration which occurs 80 years later 
than that first one. And that is a group, much smaller group, of about 5,000 people going from Persia, the capital of Persia, back to Jerusalem. And they're going there commissioned by King Artaxerxes with one primary purpose, and that is to reestablish the proper worship of God in Jerusalem amongst the Jews who've gone back to Judea. King Artaxerxes, as I pointed out back there in May, King Artaxerxes, for some reasons we can't fully understand, is deeply committed to the proper worship of God. And he commissions Ezra and gives Ezra all kinds of authority and all kinds of power to go back and teach all of those people how God is to be worshipped. And you have to go back to Leviticus, you have to go back to Deuteronomy, you have to go back to Exodus, the law of God, and say, this is what God demands. This is how we're supposed to worship. Now, it's 13 years later, after that commissioning of Ezra, it's in 445 B.C. that King Artaxerxes is going to send Nehemiah and we'll read about that when you get to chapter 2. But we need to look just at chapter 1 today. Hakaliah is mentioned only one other time in the Bible that I can find, and that's in chapter 10, verse 1. And it's simply mentioned there as Nehemiah is the son of Hakaliah. Compare that with Ezra. Ezra has a long lineage. He's the son of so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so and Finally, you'll get all the way down to Aaron. Levi, excuse me, Ezra was a Levite. He had to be able to trace his lineage back to Aaron in order to qualify as a priest. That's not true for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is part of the royalty. He's not part of the priestly class but he is a very godly man. And when you study the rest of the book, you'll find many different places that he demonstrates that godly dependence. He's always praying to God. He's always thanking God for the ways that God has blessed him. The second person we meet is Hananiah. It happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers. Now, is that just a generic term? No. That is a literal blood brother of Nehemiah. But Hanani is coming from Jerusalem on some kind of business, and he's coming all the way into the Persian Empire to the capital, Susa. Now, <clears throat> Nehemiah tells us that he's in Susa or Shushan. That's not the normal capital of Persia. This is the winter palace for the king. It's another 250 miles east of Babylon. It's about 1,200 miles from Jerusalem. They didn't have air traffic. They didn't have cars. They had camels. 
They had donkeys. They had horses. They had foot. To take that trip from Jerusalem to Susa or Shushan would take them approximately five months. Hananiah is coming from Jerusalem and he's meeting up with his brother in Susa. That ought to raise some questions. Why are these two brothers living so far apart? The Bible doesn't tell us. Some of the commentaries speculate. They both must have been living in Persia as captives. Hananiah very probably, we don't know for certain, but Hananiah very probably was in that migration with Ezra some 13 years before this. But he is now living in Jerusalem and he's coming back to Persia on official business. And he meets his brother in the capital. Notice how the conversation starts. Nehemiah comes to Hananiah and asks some questions. I came, uh, I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah is concerned about those people who were living in Judea and living in Jerusalem. So he's asking his brother, can you tell us? Now, Hananiah gives a very short, cryptic answer. That's probably simply the way Nehemiah records it. Because the details about the situation back there in Judea are going to come out as you go through the rest of the chapters of this book. You're going to find a number of things about the situation in Judea and Jerusalem that are going to make you very upset. And you say, how could that be? Notice Nehemiah's reaction. As soon as Nehemiah hears this brief report, he starts weeping. I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, And notice the timing. He gets the report in the month of Chislev. And then you go to chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan. Nisan would be our March or April. Chislev would be our November or December for approximately five whole months. Nehemiah is mourning. He's fasting. He's weeping. What about? What is wrong back there in Jerusalem that would cause that kind of reaction? One of the most obvious things is that Jerusalem is a horrific mess. When I read some of the later chapters, It makes me think of Detroit. Detroit is a city that is on the decline. It's in deep debt. You have all kinds of streets and blocks where the houses are burned out. 
That's the condition in Jerusalem. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 52, you're going to find there that it's a pretty sad situation. Go with me to Jeremiah 52 and we'll look at verses 12 and follow. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. That happens in 586 B.C. Now, Nehemiah chapter 1 occurs in 445 B.C. Do the subtraction. From 586, when everything was burned out, broken down, 445, that's 141 years before. The city of Jerusalem, the city that David built, that city that was supposed to be the home of God, where his temple was, where everybody had to gather for worship, is an absolute disaster. 141 years later, nothing has been rebuilt except the temple. And it took the Jews who went back to build the temple, it took them 23 years to build it. Why? Because of all the enemies around who kept interfering and who kept fighting against them. That same thing has been going on for 140 years. The Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Arabs around there are constantly doing everything they can to humiliate and embarrass and frustrate the Jews who've gone back to Jerusalem. 141 years, no walls have been rebuilt. You can ask the question, why do you need walls around the city? Why can't you just have open doors like we have? All the cities of that time in history had walls around them. Walls were there for protection. You think about our current political dialogue. There's all this talk about building a southern wall between us and Mexico. That kind of situation was occurring here. Nehemiah is concerned about that. The city of God is being humiliated. It's a disaster. Hardly anybody is living in Jerusalem because all the houses have been burnt and nobody is rebuilding them. If you go to the book of Haggai, you will pick up there that Haggai has to go to Jerusalem and accuse the people of spending all their time on building their houses out in the countryside 
and ignoring the building of the temple. Haggai and Zechariah come and say, you have to get busy. And they push the agenda so it finally gets done. But nobody is rebuilding the walls around the city. That's part of the reason. But there's something else going on here. Nehemiah is deeply concerned, and apparently Hananiah and the others with him gave him a lot of detail and a lot of information which reinforced those concerns. The people of God who are living in Jerusalem and Judea who wanted to go back there to worship God and to resettle the place are breaking God's laws in so many ways. That's why you have this lengthy prayer of confession. And Nehemiah says, I too have been guilty. Some of the things that were very explicit, some of the things that God said, this is what you must do, were not being done. One of those is God said, you may not marry pagan women. You have to only marry believers. So what did they do? A lot of the Levites married women from the communities around there who were pagans. And Ezra had to come and put a stop to that. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 10. But there are other things going on. When Nehemiah finally gets to Jerusalem and they start building the walls, he's met with opposition every day and every turn. The Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Arabs are constantly threatening. And they come with military might so that Nehemiah and the Israelites have to fight in order to get that wall built. But while they're trying to build the wall, something else happens. A whole bunch of farmers, people from the outlying community, come to Jerusalem and say, we can't do any work on the wall until we solve this major problem. We are experiencing a huge famine throughout the land. And you say, God controls famines. Why would God send famines to his people Israel? Because they're being disobedient. Because they're not honoring God's law. And what's happening there is that the nobility the ones with all the wealth, the ones with all the power, the ones who own the land, are charging high interest rates. And then when the farmers can't pay, they make slaves out of them. So families are being broken up because the father can't pay the taxes on his land. And the nobility come and say, all right, I'll take your oldest son and he'll become my slave. So large numbers of people are in slavery, clearly in violation of God's law. Another sin, very obvious when you read through this. God had commanded through Moses that there were three major feasts that had to be celebrated every year. One of those was the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And God said, you have to celebrate that every year and you have to do it exactly in this way 
because you need to re be reminded that I was the one who took you out of Egypt and gave you freedom. How often did the Israelites celebrate the Feast of Booths? We find out in the text, zero times from the time of Joshua to the time of Nehemiah. Not once. And Ezra had been sent there to teach the people the law of God. This is the way you're supposed to worship. This is what you're supposed to do. And they didn't do it. That's what makes Nehemiah cry. That's what makes him weep. God's people are supposed to be living according to God's law, and they aren't. Is that true today? Is that true in our culture, in our society? And you don't have to be a pessimist to say yes. I think it's quite obvious. Our society is becoming more and more pagan, more and more secular. There is very little fear of God. There is very little desire to really read and study the Word of God and then to live according to it. This congregation is not what I'm pointing to. I'm not condemning Little Farms. This is a congregation that we love, that has been so richly blessed by God. But the bigger world around us church world around us in many ways is completely ignoring the word of God. They're making up their own theology. They're making up their own religious practices. You and I have to be concerned not only about ourselves, about our families, about our children, but we also have to be deeply concerned about our country. We have to do like Nehemiah. We have to pray for our leaders. The last part of this chapter that we just read, Nehemiah is praying that God would use him, but also that God would work powerfully in the heart and mind of King Artaxerxes. When you get into the next chapter, you see that's exactly what God does. See, God works his sovereign will through human agents. He doesn't just come down with a host of angels. He uses his people, his creatures. Pray that God would use President Trump, Vice President Pence, Betsy DeVos, all those cabinet members who are professing Christians all of the people in Congress, people in state legislatures, our governor, our mayors, our local judges. We need to pray for our nation. Let's pray. Your God and Father, 
sometimes we look out, we watch the news, we read the internet, and we're stunned. Stunned at the kinds of things, the kinds of practices, the kinds of evil that seems to be so prevalent. We think, for example, Lord, of all the opiate addictions, the thousands and thousands of people who are dying every year because of overdoses. And then we ask, why? Why would somebody risk their lives, risk their careers by taking that stuff? And yet, Lord, without having the gospel, without having the assurance of salvation, people become desperate. We see corruption all around because people ignore your law. and We pray that you would bring about a revival in our land. We pray that we might have the courage that was demonstrated by Jeremiah and Isaiah and those great prophets of yours to dare to speak the truth, to dare to call people to repentance. We ask that you would give each one of us that kind of courage, that kind of insight. In Jesus' name, amen.